Matthew 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Now, when we come to a passage like this, where especially these passages where we have Jesus in opposition to another person, uh, one of the questions that we ask ourselves as we're studying the Bible, um, not as much when we're in the understanding phase, but in the application phase, one of the important questions that we ask and we seek guidance from the Spirit in is, um, God, which character am I? So when I come to a text personally, and I look through and I maybe read commentaries or I look up words or, or I just try and, you know, try and decipher what's going on. You begin to come to an understanding of what the story is about, what's being said. There comes this point where you have to say, okay, God, which person am I in the story? How do I apply this to me? Where do I fit into it? And all of us, or at least me, when we come to a story like this, I think we would all agree it's a more pleasant application to apply this story to our lives, seeing ourselves as the character of Jesus. I think the most pleasant application of this passage is to say, okay, God, I want you to give me wisdom and understanding so that when people try to argue with me, I just make them look bad, right? How many people can agree that that is probably the most pleasant interpretation and application of this passage? Be honest. Like... That's the one we would prefer, is God, just whenever people try to make me look bad, I pray that I have all the answers and that I impress them with my wisdom and my understanding and make them look silly. And there will certainly be times in your life as a believer when that happens. And I celebrate with you when it does. Another thing that we have to recognize is those of us who have been in church for a long, long period of time, uh, many of you have been in church longer than I have in terms of years. I've been in church a very long time in terms of percentages. I was raised in a Christian home. I was raised in the church. I was saved at an early age. And what we have to recognize if we've been walking with the Lord for a very long time is a couple things. First of all, we recognize, and, and this is the easy one, that without Jesus, we are sinners. That without the work of the Holy Spirit, we cannot overcome sin that a moment not trusting in his presence and we begin to slip away. And I think we all understand that and we all affirm that readily. No, I don't expect any disagreements. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. What we also have to recognize along with that, though, is those of us who grew up in church, a moment without Jesus, we don't just suddenly become 
addicted to a substance. We don't suddenly become, if you haven't had alcohol since 1945 or ever, you're not suddenly going to just in a moment slip back into that. What we have to recognize is that as people who were raised in church or, or who have been in church for a long period of time, if we slip up, what we become is not worldly in the common understanding, but pharisaic. That when we do the things that we've been doing our whole lives, and then for a moment, if we take the work of the Spirit, the work of Jesus out of that, we don't suddenly become, you know, we don't just go open a casino or... That was a little funny. I'm bringing a little humor in to keep us on the right track. We don't suddenly do whatever that really bad stuff is that we picture when we think about the world, what... Our temptation is is to become legalistic, pharisaic, judgmental, cold-hearted. That's where we go. And so when I read a passage like this one, I think it's especially important for us who have been in the church, especially me more than just about anyone other than maybe five of you, who I've dedicated my life to vocational ministry, I am, I am far more in danger of slipping up giving into sin in regard to becoming more like a Pharisee than I am to becoming more like a Roman soldier who kills and exploits and hurts. That's the danger for me. That's the danger for many of us. So when I come to a passage like this, as much as I want to identify with Jesus, I have to understand that the greatest danger, the greatest way sin will attack me is by using my desire to be like Jesus and prove people wrong, twist that, use that against the kingdom to ostracize and alienate those who are seeking Jesus truly. That I can go out and try to argue like Jesus and make people look bad, and I really just make people feel bad and push them away from the gospel. So when I approach a passage like this, I just approach it realizing that I am far more likely to be in need of God's work to pull me away from being like the Pharisees than I am being like Jesus. That that's what sin will try to do in my life. So with that in mind, let's look at this passage. You've probably heard it before. The Pharisees come to Jesus, as they often do, they try to trick him up, they try to offer a question that he can't answer. What's unique about this passage is the Pharisees, who were just the, some of the most well-educated, well-respected religious leaders, they come with a group identified here as the Herodians. Now, we don't really know what that means. It's not a term that's used in any secular literature. It barely shows up in the New Testament. There's no references or writings anywhere else about them. And so everything we know about this group, we kind of have to just guess from the name. Herod, of course, being the Jewish king who partnered with Rome to exploit his people and gain power and wealth for himself. We imagine anyone who would identify with him is someone who identifies with his political policies of, of partnering with Rome, of kind of what many would deem turning their backs on their people 
exploiting their own people, being selfish, being worldly, that they support the secular Roman occupation, which is a group that the Pharisees would have, in any other circumstance, had nothing to do with. In fact, if we understand who the Herodians were correctly, they were directly opposed to the Pharisees. They were at odds with one another, which is exactly why the Pharisees try to use them to get to Jesus. So they go to him, and they ask him this question, and they said, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, knowing that no matter what he answers, they can use it to their advantage? If he says it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, well, then he's no longer worthy to be considered a rabbi because no respectable rabbi would say that it is, it is in God's law to support a foreign government and give wealth to a foreign, for, foreign government. If, on the other hand, he says it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, he will be in a really good place with the religious community. He will be in a good place with the zealots and the, the core Jewish people. But the Herodians will go and say to the Romans, here is a teacher who is, is very popular. He has a large following, and he is encouraging Jews to stop paying taxes. And then the Romans would take care of the problem. It's a shrewd little plan. It's a shrewd little plan. But the Pharisees find out, they discover, as we often do when we go to God with our shrewd little plans. Have you ever had a shrewd, shrewd little plan you've brought to God? As we often find out with our shrewd little plans, it doesn't work the way they intended. He knows they're hypocrites. He knows that they're not truly seeking knowledge. They're not going to him trying to learn. And he gives them this very wise answer. He looks at the coin there's a picture of Caesar on it, and he says, look, it's got Caesar's face. It belongs to Caesar. Give it back to Caesar. And give to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him, and they went away. Now, there's two problems for the Pharisees in this passage. The first is the one that they would readily admit, which is their plan didn't work. They tried to set Jesus up so they could exploit his answer, so they could hurt him, so they could discredit him, and it failed. They had this plan. It was a good plan. It was going to work. They had to partner with some people they didn't really like, but it was worth it in the long run. If it worked, it didn't work. Their plan failed. Jesus comes out looking even better than he did before. That's the first problem. There's a second problem, though, that I don't know that they realized or recognized. The second problem was they had the opportunity to access and learn from all of the wisdom in the universe. The divine logos, wisdom, understanding of God was present in their midst. And they failed to learn. John. John White is a wonderful woodworker. Who's your favorite who's your favorite craftsman? The most skilled, the most impressive? Do you have a name? Christian Best Wood. Christian? So if you were in a room with Christian, if he walked into your wood shop, would you spend your time asking him 
what he thought of the football game the night before. You would not, would you? If he said, John, I'm here, I've got 20 minutes, ask me any question you want, you wouldn't waste that opportunity. You would have a number, of, you would say, well, what do you, th-? and I don't know what his strengths are, but you would maybe ask things like, what do you think of the layout of my shop? And is there any way I could, you know, make the, or what do you think of these finishing techniques or, or this, or what tool to use, or can you show me, can you show me how you would work with this piece of wood and let me watch, and you would gain wisdom, understanding, skills. The Pharisees were the most learned of the learned. They knew more than anybody else. They were passionate in their pursuit of truth. And they had not only someone who knew a lot about it, they had the very source of truth right in front of them. And they walked away having learned nothing. They had the one person that could help them more than anyone else in the, in the primary pursuit of their life, and they learned nothing. They didn't grow. They didn't grow in wisdom. They didn't grow in character or understanding. They left the same as they came. And what greater tragedy for any human being than to have a genuine encounter with Jesus and to leave the same way they showed up. Why did that happen? There's, I think there's two reasons really why it happened. The first is they didn't want to learn. They didn't want to recognize Jesus for who he was. That's a simple first answer. Hopefully, we're over that. If we've come, come to belief, we're over that first one. We recognize him for who he is. We want to learn. But there's a second reason, a practical reason why they walk away having learned nothing and having not be changed. And it's the second that I think can be troublesome to us. You see, what happens here is they ask Jesus a question, but when he sees through it and he calls them hypocrites, he's not just doing it because they are working with people that they hate. He doesn't just do it because they are full of malice. It's revealed in the very words that they say that they are acting in hypocrisy. Because the question they ask Jesus is not really the question. They ask Jesus, is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar? But what you have to understand is those two groups, if they both ask that question, it means something very different. When the Pharisees say, is it lawful, what they mean is, is it lawful according to the law of Moses? Is it lawful according to the law of Moses? If the Herodians, as representatives of the Roman occupation, ask the question, is it lawful, what they're asking is, is it lawful according to Rome? Rome is the ultimate authority. Is it lawful according to Roman law? And if a Roman soldier were over, to overhear Jesus say the words, it is not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, you can bet they would have some things to say about that. What do you mean it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? That would be a, a, an absurd a statement as it would in our own culture. If you said, yeah, I just I don't pay property taxes 
it's against the law. You'd say, well, you can have your opinions, but it's certainly not against the law to pay taxes. And that statement would get you into trouble. Be a lot less painful for you in our culture physically than it would have then, but it's clearly against the law. So the question that they're asking is not really, is it lawful or not? The question that they pose to Jesus ultimately is, which law is more important? And by extension, they ask, who is really in charge of this land? Is God the ultimate authority or is Caesar? And if he says God, then Caesar's soldiers will have something to do about that. And if he answers Caesar, he's committing blasphemy. He is, in their mind, breaking the Ten Commandments, denying the law, breaking the law. And any, any self-respecting Jew, even those who had been following him, would in that moment reject him, turn their backs on him, and at best no longer follow him. Most likely they would call for his execution. So they go to Jesus, and the question that they ask him isn't really the question. And more than that, even still, it's not the question they should have been asking. So the question that they asked was not the question that they had, And the question that they had was not the question that would have led them to a deeper understanding in their faith. It's not a question that would in any way allow them to grow and leave their time with Jesus better off and better than they were before. You see, here's what a better question would sound like. Rather than coming to Jesus, and after all of the flattery and all of the the praise, if they had asked this question... I believe things would have turned out different. Here's the question I believe the Pharisees should have asked. Teacher, we know you are good. Teacher, how do we serve and honor God under Roman rule? That was the question. Teacher, we don't know how to do this. Because in our law, we're not supposed to We're not supposed to pay tribute and honor and worship anyone besides Yahweh. And it feels like when we're paying taxes to Caesar that we're doing that. First of all, we have this piece of of gold or silver that has has his face on it. And we're not supposed to have any graven image of of a human being. We're not supposed to have the likeness of a man on anything. And so this feels like idolatry to even have the coin. and, And it feels like we're denying who God is, but there's... At this point, nothing we can do about it. We've tried to rise up. We've tried to rebel. We've, we've had revolts, and we, had, and, and we thought we had it a, a number of years ago, and it didn't work out. We've done everything we can to get rid of them. We can't avoid it. Teacher, how do we honor God in this Roman occupation? And really, I... I think the answer would have been the same. I think Jesus would have said simply, show me the coin. Whose face is this? It's Caesar's. Okay, then give him what belongs to him and give God what belongs to God. Give Caesar what matters to Caesar, 
in what Caesar believes to be important and give to God what is most important to God. Because God never minted any currency. There's a degree of finance in the Old Testament, but it's just weights of silver. God never minted a currency. He didn't care about that. Caesar does. So the answer is the same. The difference between the Pharisees having a life-changing encounter with Jesus and going away the same but in a worse mood, the difference between those two things is not in the answer that Jesus gave, but in the question that was asked. As As I've thought about my own prayer life, I've come to understand that having powerful times of prayer, at least in the arena of life change, if I go to prayer, just if I'm in a bad place or if I'm anxious or if I'm, if I'm hurting or, or grieving or, or whatever, if I, want, if I want my times of prayer to be uplifting to be edifying, to help me to grow and to move forward in my faith, I've discovered it hinges far more on the questions I ask than it does the answers that I look for. To the point where even I think a lot of times God gives us the answers and it asks us to find and seek the questions. And we don't look at it that way. Let me give you some examples. You can go to God and say, God, I just found out I'm getting a pay cut at work. How on earth am I going to continue making payments on this 2023 Corvette Z06? (laughs) Mary's skipping ahead because she's a teacher. But that's exactly the point, right? We go to God, and it's a silly, obvious kind of example, but the reality is, the reality is, we do this all the time. But in the silly, easy to understand example, yeah, we go to God and say, God, how am I going to afford this Corvette? What we should be doing is saying, God, is this what you have for me? Is this the plan you have for me? How are we going to afford the, the mortgage? How are we going to afford? And we go to God looking for the answer to our question. And maybe God says, the pay cut was the answer. The question was, should you continue driving a brand new Corvette? And if you went to God and said, God, should I continue to drive this brand new Corvette? And then that afternoon found out you were getting a pay cut, you would understand very clearly what God was saying to you, right? If you asked the question, should I keep the Corvette, and then you, you got a pay cut that afternoon, you would say, wow, that was a very clear answer to that prayer and to that question. I'm not supposed to keep driving the car. Now, it's easy for us in that, partially because none of us drive a 2023 Corvette. So it's really hypothetical. It's really easy to see, but we will also say things like, God, how do I get my kids to come to church more often? That one's a lot more real, isn't it? 
And God maybe says to us, look, I love your kids. I'm working on your kids. But you need to give me space to work on them the way I want to work on them. And we need to say things like, we need to ask ourselves how we make our kids feel at home in church. Sometimes we just need to say, God, what is the question? What do I need to be looking at? What do I need to be looking for? And the question I often ask myself is, how often are my prayers and the questions that I bring to God shaped by my own preferences? When I say, God, how do I afford the Corvette? That's obviously shaped by my preference. And when I ask God, and we're walking into this, I've got a daughter that I just sent to college. I've got a kid who's in that period where many kids leave the church. I'm, I'm stepping into this right now. And I want to see my kid walk a path where she never, she never steps out of the church. If your kid is not in church right now or your grandkid is not in church right now, I guarantee your preference, nothing wrong with this, but I guarantee your preference is that they're in church next week. It'd be even better if they just walk in late to the sermon today, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. You love your children. You love your grandchildren. There's nothing wrong with that preference, but it is our preference. I want my daughter to keep calling me and telling me that she went to church on Sunday. I don't want her to call me and say, I just need a break I need to leave church for a little bit and figure things out on my own. I don't want that. It's not my preference that it happened that way, but that doesn't mean that it's the right way. I have preferences about a lot of things in my life. I have preferences about the hardships that my kids and my family goes through. I have preferences about the way that we live. I have preferences about the way ministry happens and the way God grows me as a person. I would love for him to grow me in ways that are fun and easy and simple, but they very rarely are. So, so I ask myself, how often are my prayers? The questions that I'm bringing to God shaped by my own preferences. I use this tool with my kids and it's okay. I say, hey, do you guys want to eat green beans or broccoli? And ultimately, no matter what they say, I'm getting my preference. And that's a good preference. My kids need to eat vegetables. I don't say, do you guys want to have... You can go get some water in Oh, you want me to put some water in it? I don't say to my kids, do you want to have broccoli or Oreos for dinner? And I shouldn't do that on a regular basis. But I kind of use that same tactic in my prayer life sometimes as well. I ask a question in a way like the Pharisees did to get an answer that I like. And God just doesn't... He either doesn't answer those prayers or the answers that he gives me for are for a question that I never asked, and then I have to go back and ask that question. So church, are we being honest in our prayers? 
Are we going to God and saying, God, here's the problem. The problem. Hold on a sec, bud. Okay. Here's the problem. How do I solve it? Or are we saying to God, God, clearly something is not right here. Help me to identify what needs to change. Give him the opportunity to say, the problem isn't the money you're making at work. The problem is the money that's in your budget. Say, God, help me to identify the true problem. Help me to identify the questions that I need to ask to learn more about who you are. I ask God for questions. I try. I try to ask God for questions more than I ask him for answers. And I found in my life that that allows him to lead me far more. It allows him to lead me far more. Let's pray. Father, we know that yours is more than just an opinion that we get at the last minute. And Father, we can make so many decisions. We can let our preferences and our desires take over. And to the point where when we finally get around to asking your opinion, we're just, we're just asking you if we should get, get the vet in red or yellow. We let our opinions take over to the point where we just, we, we bring you in for a consult at the end, but we're, we're following our plan. So Lord, I pray that we are not like the Pharisees, because God, we, we love you, and I, I know I know the people of this church. I know their desire is to serve you and to know you and understand you. We want to be like you. We want to follow you. And so we reject any ways that our flesh, that our passions, that our desires, that our wants, our perception of our own needs gets in the way of us really and truly hearing your voice. We pray, Lord, that we can allow you to bring us back to see the big picture, that you can back us up as, as much as we possibly need to, to see your will. I pray, Lord, that we be a church that asks the right questions. That we be a church that asks the hard questions. That's willing to look at ourselves and say, how can we be better? How can we be more like our Savior? How can we be more loving? How can we be more compassionate? We don't want to be a church. We see the churches out there that are churches that, that say, God, how do we convince the world how bad they are? How do, we, how do we fight back against the world? How do we push back? Let us turn our eyes to you. And all that we do, may we adopt your nature, the nature of a servant. May we put others first. And we rest in your arms, rest in your care, trust in your provision, and seek your will in all that we do. We love you, Lord, and we ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Amen.